Viktor Frankl said, Everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms. To choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's way. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson. Stay tuned for the next hour as Sue explores the human psyche, what makes us tick and how to live better, more fulfilled and more meaningful lives. Only on 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson on Finding Human. And my guest today is Gretchen Wilson Prangley and we're on Skype. And our topic is Play Africa, A Dream to Reality. Before we start, I would just like to say that I would like to dedicate this particular program to Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, who passed away this last Saturday. He was a great leader and a mentor and a teacher to so many of us. And Gretchen, what he did say, which I love this quote, he said, God has given us many faiths, but only one world in which to coexist. May your work help us cherish our commonalities and feel enlarged by our differences. Mm. Isn't that beautiful? It's very beautiful and very poignant at this time. Absolutely. Um, Gretchen is a, a co-founder and CEO of Play Africa. She's going to be telling us about it. She's a journalist. She is a co-author of Dust to Diamonds. And she has been a reporter. She's an, was an American living in South Africa now. She, her CV just goes on and on and on. But I must say one of the greatest things about her is that she's a mother of three beautiful boys. And how do I know they're beautiful boys? I can see your cup with one of them on. And um, the, because your mom-in-law, Jenny, who's a very good friend of mine, um, shows me a lot of photographs. <laughs> beautiful boys. And uh, Gretchen is also married to Anthony Prangley, who I've known since he was a baby and I've loved since then as well. Hello, Gretchen. Welcome. How Thanks. are you today? Oh, I'm so pleased to be here and to be here with your listeners. Um, it's a really privilege for me to, to speak with you in this context. And I just thank you very much for having me. Can you see me by any chance? Because I can see yes. you. And, oh, you can. Okay. I wasn't sure. You know, I sort of fiddle around with this. Um, Gretchen, just tell me. Um, I've already... Um, Craig is already sending me a thing just to say we're going to add break quickly. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson. Only on 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson, and I'm back with Gretchen Wilson-Prangley, and who's the CEO and co-founder of Play Africa. Um, Gretchen is also a journalist with extensive uh, experience. Uh, she was the Africa correspondent for American Public Media's Marketplace, and um, you you co-authored that Dust to Diamonds, which is the stories of South African social entrepreneurs. Uh, you, you you hold master's degrees in journalism, and you and I can go on and on. But I would like people to actually look you up um, uh, on Google, and they'll find you there. And you also to look up Play Africa. And to pick mm. up all the different YouTubes with there, which are absolutely amazing. Mm. Gretchen, tell me about your decision to come to South Africa. 
Thanks so much, Sue. So um, I was living in New York City. So as you can hear from my voice, I was originally born and raised in, in, in the United States. And just to step back even before how I decided to move here, I became aware of South Africa and apartheid when I was a young girl um, and found out that apartheid existed. And for me at the time, in the mid-80s, I couldn't understand how a system, a legal system, could exist like that still at this time. So I remember I was very involved in going to some after-school meetings or some evening meetings, taking my parents to some some meetings about how can we help support, you know, efforts to end apartheid by choosing to, to, to buy certain products over others and how, who do we, how do we leverage our consumer dollars to be able to, to put pressure on companies to divest from South Africa at the time. So in some senses, I feel like my story um, and my relationship to, play, to South Africa goes back kind of some time. And then, you know, as I was in uh, in college, I was very interested in seeing what was happening in the early 90s and the mid-90s here in South Africa, and I thought about coming to graduate school here. But in the end, my, my life path took a different direction, and ultimately I ended up at Columbia University studying journalism and staying in New York working as a journalist. But I was working in a corporate journalist job, and it really wasn't uh, me. You know, I really was very interested in journalism as a means to communicate and to achieve social impact so that I could identify and discover stories that were undertold and underdeveloped and, and underknown <laughs> in the broader world. So while look, while working at the United Nations um, in 2003, I was getting close with a lot of UN agencies and asked them where in the world do they feel that the stories, the humanitarian stories, are not getting the attention they deserve. And they identified Southern Africa at the time uh, undergoing such incredible devastation with regard to both um, HIV and AIDS and the challenges at the time, as well as ongoing food insecurity um, and drought. And so I decided to, to quit my job in, in a corporate, you know, corporate job in New York, and I bought a one-way ticket to Johannesburg, um, never having been here before, didn't know anyone. <laughs> And um, I quit my job, and and, and you were a young girl. Yeah, I was I was in my late twenties at the time, and you know it was a it was a kind of a perfect storm of my my apartment lease ending, and um, uh, you know feeling frustrated at this job, and feeling like there was more that I wanted to achieve with my life, and now or never was the kind of idea. So, you know, at the time, people told me I was very brave to to leave everything and start in a new country, and um, I didn't, it didn't really resonate for me at the time, but I think now it probably, it, it was a pretty bold thing to do, um, not knowing anyone in the city. And I had this idea, Sue, that I would land as a journalist, and you know, I was dedicated to telling stories about people and how they were managing in this world of, a, of an increasingly global economy and issues around healthcare and women's rights. And, and I had this whole idea that I would do that, you know, almost, uh, as a solo lone wolf journalist, you know, crashing on the floor in some, you know, hotel in some rural area and then moving on to another story. But really, I didn't really expect the fact that I'm a very social person and I like to build relationships and build friendships and I love to, to meet people. And so, of course, when I arrived, I landed in Melville. And, you know, by the end of a month, I felt like I had a, a really strong new network of other journalists and academics and writers and artists and others. And at the time, if you can recall back there, you know, in 2004, Johannesburg, 
um, it was a different era of still emerging into the sense of possibility and newness um, that we a felt. Lot of excitement. A lot of excitement. I mean, this is six years before the World Cup even. So that was just a thrilling time to arrive here. And I, I feel like, uh, you know, I had thought I'd stay for a year before moving on to another city or another place. And, you know, South Africa really captured my heart. And I felt really privileged to meet the incredible people that I met here and whose stories and the rich histories, the personal histories, the human histories here were so profound. And, you know, it speaks to the content of your show, this idea of the resilience and the and the incredible humility and um, personal sacrifice that so many people have made in this country to build this democracy. It just felt for me that there was no place in the world I'd rather be than here. Is that when you became an award-winning journalist? Was it through your stories here? Yeah. So, so like I said, I didn't know anyone. I quit my job, if you, if you recall. I I'd quit my job with the hopes of, of picking up work as an international freelance journalist and, and then ultimately getting on some kind of contract. And so I think there's a part of part of that leap of faith that required me to hit the ground running. So before I arrived, I'd reached out to people by email and built this kind of spreadsheets of different people that I might contact when I get on the ground and started just reaching out to different organizations and saying what stories are being told, what needs to be told out there, what's happening. And, you know, within within a few weeks, I was at the border of Zimbabwe reporting on conditions at the police station in Messina and reporting for the United Nations for um, and other international publications. And and in a lot of ways, it was just for me a fulfilling of a dream. I think it speaks to the theme of what you're describing. But the idea that I could leave a, a very comfortable job with a pension and and strong health insurance and, a you know, a, a path to a mortgage and a very stable existence, but one that might have been very underwhelming for what I felt my potential could be. Um, it really felt, I remember that feeling of complete joy of and bliss to be ha- having taken this leap of faith and to be in an entirely different part of the world and fulfilling my dream. So right from the beginning, even though you'd left home, you'd left your family behind, you still seem to have entered into a place of meaning and purpose which not many people find, you know. It takes mm-hmm. a lot of courage sometimes, but you mm-hmm. you searched for it and almost intuitively you seem to have known what you wanted. Mm. You know, I, I wonder about that. I think it's hard for me. I think that was why the work at the corporate journalist desk didn't really resonate for me. It was, for me, it felt particularly challenging. I, I remember feeling like this isn't what I'm here to, to do, you know, that this is not what I'm meant to be doing. And I think listening to that feeling um, is so important. And when I think about what I talk to with young young professionals now when they ask me for mentorship advice, I often tell them to look for where they feel that sense of envy, where they find that sense of envy as a teacher that can teach them what they are really being called to to move into. So when they start to feel a sense of of, oh, I wish I could be doing that, and to really listen to that little voice, because I think it can lead us um, to to new places and to give us the courage to go after that. Um, You know, I I also just acknowledge, uh, you know, the privilege that I had to be able to leave a job. I was in my late 20s. I didn't have children. Um, I wasn't currently in a relationship. 
I didn't, I'd, I'd lived very simply, so I didn't accrue a lot of debt. And I think that gave me the freedom to be able to make a big career and life change like that. But that comes with the privilege of having um, received scholarships to attend graduate school and to receive, you know, financial support to be able to set me up, you know, in a, prof- in a professional career so that I, I know that it's not a choice that everyone can have. Um, but I think that we all can listen to that little voice of, of, that's calling to us to do something bigger and bolder um, and that we can, if we can stop and listen to that little voice, it can really lead us to new places. How wonderful. Mm. We'll get back to that in a moment. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on 101.9 High FM. I'm back with um, Gretchen Wilson-Prangley, and we are talking about what brought her to South Africa and what actually made her feel that this was home, because that's what I'm hearing from you, that mm-hmm. you had the strong call. But you know what's becoming very obvious is that I can see why you are so involved with uh, educating youngsters because from a young age Hmm. you were interested in in apartheid in what was happening the injustices of another system i mean Hmm. that's quite amazing that a young girl should have actually started from that age searching Hmm. and Hmm. it almost led you into this path Hmm. now tell me i know you went back to america and you visited a children's museum. Tell yeah. me about that time. Sure. So I had had my first uh, two of the three boys in two, 20, 2009 and 2011. And at the end of 2012, I was back visiting my parents for uh, the December holidays. And we took my boys to something called a children's museum. And a children's museum is something that is pretty well established in many places around the world. It's a hands-on, experiential, play-based space that's for communities to come together, families to come together, or school groups where children can play with a range of experiences and exhibits that are designed to excite creativity, imagination, problem-solving, communication. And I had really not known how profound these spaces were. You know, where I grew up in Seattle and outside Seattle, there are about seven different children's museums within a seven, within a 45 minute drive from the center, center of Seattle. So you can go any direction and go to seven different children's museums. These are spaces that have been built in communities to bring children and families together through play. When I walked into the space, it was a busy day. Um, there were probably at this point in this large facility, probably a thousand family members all gathered to play together. There was a giant bus that had the children could sit in the in the driver's seat. There was a, um, a a plane that you could sit in the cockpit or sit in the back in the as a passenger. You could load the luggage onto the plane. You could go into a small pizza place and make a pizza for your mom. You could go with your dad into the little theater and make a play. You could go upstairs to a large jungle gym that's bigger than any jungle gym you've ever seen before. You could dig for dinosaur bones. These are the kinds of things that children's museums provide to communities. And I had really a lightning bolt moment where I walked in and I looked around and I saw the joy on my children's faces. And I thought in particular of the context in which we live in South Africa. And it really, it, it, from that moment on, I said, I'm going to 
build something like this, or I'm going to be inspired by this to build something that's right for our context in South Africa. And the reason I felt that so strongly was because I think there is so much power in bringing people together in shared, inclusive, and equitable spaces where children's learning, children's equal value is is cherished, and that every child and every family member has an equal opportunity to touch, feel, explore with the same um, kinds of exhibits and programs. The truth is that there is so much that's being done to transform the education system and the inequities of the education system in South Africa. And I applaud and champion all of that work. At the same time, the process of that transformation will take generations for us to truly develop an equitable education system. So my bold idea is that by creating spaces now where children can experience high-class, world-class educational provocations that can inspire them to be creative, to be curious, to help them think um, through problem solving and critical thinking. We can do a lot now to both inspire young people of today, inspire the parents to see the power of that play, and then to inspire educators to think about new methodologies and bring 21st century thinking about the latest research and thinking about education back into classrooms. So we, if you can think of children's museums, what we're trying to do at Play Africa as, as incubation hubs of excellence to really inspire replication back in people's homes and in schools, it, it really helps get a sense of what we're trying to do here. Absolutely. And, you know, I read that you're the co-founder, your founding chairperson uh, of Play Africa, Sheila uh, Tayeku, is that how you pronounce it? Tayeku, yeah. Yeah, she said that there's a perception of Africa's, uh, Africans' children being abused and malnourished. And she says in the way in which she was brought up, it was my child was your child. Your child was my child. And children were children. Mm-hmm. And she says, I would like to restore this back to them. And to me, it actually fits that the African concept of it takes a village to raise a child. Mm. So what you are saying is that we all need to work together to change the inequalities of our educational system in whatever way we are able to do. And you would play Africa. You are at Constitutional Hill. Is that right? Yes, we're at Constitution Hill in the old fort section. Mm-hmm. And yet, isn't that amazing that children's laughter and fun and games are, are going on there? I, I found that wonderful. I actually found that I was very tearful when I saw those YouTubes mm-hmm. of the children mm-hmm. laughing in that space. And then I mm-hmm. saw that you actually, you, you have almost like a pop-up theater that you go mm-hmm. to different schools. Tell me what happens yes, so- there. Sure, sure. So we're, we are a children's museum and what we're doing is we're leveraging existing public spaces whilst we don't have a flagship, beautiful, massive facility of our own. We're leveraging existing public spaces to catalyze these innovations in creative learning and creating spaces for children's rights. We're also catalyzing innovations in how to get parents engaged in children's learning and to build greater social cohesion. And 
by doing this, what we're doing is really disrupting this idea of what a museum is and what it can be in our context here in South Africa. So we are a children's museum, but for the listeners who are just tuning in, you have to suspend all thoughts of what you think a museum is. Most people think of museums as dusty places that are about preserving the past, that are very delinked from daily life, um, that tend to be managed by perhaps some stuffy uh, person in a suit, and that there are places where you mustn't touch things that you might not even feel welcome. If you can imagine the exact opposite, what we're trying to do is create inclusive, welcoming, warm, joyful spaces where everyone is invited to touch, feel, explore a range of different exhibits. And so we do that at Constitution Hill. And prior to COVID, we were there five days a week offering free um, programs to children and to families from across Johannesburg and increasingly across other provinces who were coming to play Africa for field trips. And we know that not every child in Johannesburg can come to us. So we would also create outreach programs in school halls, in parks, community centers, um, street corners. We would take Play Africa to children where they live. And that's something that we have been pioneering and I think is one of the things that really has made us uh, in many ways uh, considered a thought leader in the way in which museums are reimagining how they provide value to their audiences and how they respond to the needs of their audiences. So in a lot of ways, what we're doing is this really exciting work here in Johannesburg, but increasingly we've been recognized more and more globally as being at the frontier of what a museum will become in the 21st century. We actually, I'll just show you, since we're on Skype, Sue, I can show you, you mentioned my book about social entrepreneurs, but this is the book that I've contributed to most recently. Can you see that? It's yeah, called International, International Thinking on Children and Museums. Just read that again. It's called International Thinking on Children in Museums, a Sociocultural View of Practice. So we've just um, contributed a, a chapter about Play Africa's story um, to be part of this international dialogue about how museums are reimagining themselves for children and for families for the future. So we're really proud of doing a lot of that work to help transform children's museums, not just here in South Africa, but globally. So I'll be on a call on Thursday with the CEOs of the Association of Children's Museums sharing our post-COVID journey with those CEOs to inspire them and show them some of the ways that we've taken some low-cost approaches to, to make an impact in our families um, since COVID started. That if anyone is interested in actually reading that book or, or buying it, where would they get it? It's on order. It's published by Rutledge. It's a, it's, it's, um, you can, you can Google it. I mean, it's on Amazon. It's on anything. Uh, International Thinking on Children in Museums is what it's called. You know what I loved? I, I loved seeing in one of the YouTubes children building. I mean, those looked like huge Legos. Mm -hmm. I found it exciting just to watch those children <laughs> building. And then the, some of them were building um, houses. Some of them were building cars. Somebody said they were building a taxi. So within yeah. that, there's education as well. What do you need in the car for safety or in the taxi mm -hmm. for safety? So I was very impressed with that, Rich, and I must admit, absolutely amazing. I received a, a message from Sean Waters uh, today, and he was saying developing and fostering curiosity 
prompts us to ask questions and that curiosity directly activates the neurotransmitter dopamine, which rewards us by receiving answers to our questions. So I rather like that um, it's, a, it's an article that he wrote, wrote on why we should always ask the question, why? Mm. And I think that's very much what your museum is, is actually encouraging. Mm. Why? And it's Absolutely. multiracial, isn't it? I mean, are you getting all different schools involved now? Yes, exactly. So we work, if you, if you look at last year in a pre-COVID year as an example, in our programs based at Constitution Hill, we would have served almost 9,000 children and educators and parents with two to three to four hour programs um, in that space. And those um, are broken down as, uh, as following because we do, we are open to everyone, but we do a lot of proactive outreach to schools, low fee and no fee schools that can otherwise not afford opportunities like this. So whilst we are open and 100% open to the public at all times, we do a lot of our um, our marketing and in educator engagement with communities that don't have a lot of ex exposure like this. So as a result, last year, 91% of our visitors would be considered black under triple BE codes. And what's really remarkable is that we really want to model what a truly inclusive children's museum or cultural institution could look like. So a lot of what we do is outreach to think about inclusion in different ways. So last year, 8.6% of the children who visited Play Africa were children that we knew to have disabilities. And we do that because we want to reach out and not not only ensure that we are um, inclusive to to ensure that you know we we can manage children if they they happen to come and they have a disability. We want to proactively build those relationships with families who might feel typically quite marginalized by public spaces. And that's why we find that we've been able to, you know, really develop a model that we, we believe is amongst, if not the, amongst one of the most inclusive cultural institutions that the world has ever seen. And that was also a very moving a YouTube that you've got, actually, a video of that, of children in, in wheelchairs and other children helping them. It was, mm. it was a very inclusive uh, YouTube. Just mm. tell me, what has this done to your soul? How, mm. how do you feel you have changed with this? Mm -hmm. It may be not changed, but grown into the Yeah, I think we'll change and grow. And I definitely feel like for me, this has been a journey as a founder and as a social entrepreneur, a journey um, uh, of learning for sure. I think I've learned a lot. And I think right now my main focus is, is my journey as a leader and trying to think about how I can be most effective um, as a leader. So I think I, I'm very interested in, in a lot of the work and research that's been done around how to effectively um, grow and scale, um, you know, successful concepts, and I and I really have learned a lot from from mentors in the in the business sector, um, in the cultural sector. I think I, I owe a tremendous amount of debt to those who've been before me and who've given me advice, who've offered me guidance, and. So for me, that's been truly profound. I love what I do. I mean, I oftentimes will work a 12-hour day and regretfully close the computer because I will say, I wish I could work another 12 hours more. You know, I just absolutely love what I do. And 
I am so passionate about the power and potential of South Africa's children. I think one of the ways we do, you can describe what we're doing is we're hoping to encourage people to see children differently. You know, we have this image of the child that we carry at Play Africa that every child is curious, is capable, is strong, is resilient. We see the potential in that child. And it's really about, as you mentioned, um, uh, my colleague Sheila Tieko had mentioned about the African child. We are trying to disrupt this idea of what people associate when they think of a child in Africa, a child who is facing deficits of, of neglect, of negligence. This is really not the kind of child that we want people to see. We want people to see the assets of that child and the potential and rich possibilities that are before that child if they are given the context in which to flourish. So that's the kind of thing that I think really excites me about the work that we're doing. And I think it increasingly is inspiring other um, organizations and, and universities and others who see our work and really see it as a model um, to be replicated more broadly. Well, I certainly saw the spirit of the child in mm. in everything that I saw on Play Africa. It was so beautiful. It was really, it warmed my heart. What mm. about your family, your own children? Are they involved in this with you? They are. And I've got to actually say that, you know, I, I owe them a tremendous amount of debt myself. Because I think as any entrepreneur knows, you spend a lot of energy building a business. It becomes like another baby in your family, you know. And... It has required a lot of sacrifice of my personal time, and um, I'm incredibly grateful for my husband and my children to create the environment in which I am able to um, be a CEO of the social enterprise. So it, they've been, you know, they've been coming to Play Africa experiences um, since since we started running. I mean, they were they were toddlers and and young boys when we started, and my son Ross, who's the baby of the family, is is going to grow up coming to Play Africa. Um, but it's, yeah, I think I owe them a tremendous amount because I think I feel very blessed. We'll get back to that in a moment. Thank you, Craig. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on 101.9 High FM. Hello, I'm back with Gretchen Wilson-Prangley. And Gretchen, what I want to just read out to you, I received this wonderful message from Les Erwick, Professor Les Erwick. He doesn't like me giving him his full title in Australia. And it's, he said, hi, Sue, your program tonight looks fascinating because obviously it's night time there in Australia. He said, um, I, I saw your YouTube on your interviewee. It does remind me about the power of childhood curiosity and the need to foster it. One of the earlier films of the Foster Brothers, who later made Octopus Teacher, is a movie called Cosmic Africa, about mm. a young boy's curiosity and how it resulted in his scientific and spiritual exploration and his quest to also instill that curiosity in the next generations. And then he sent details, which I'll send on to you. And it's about a Tebu uh, Madupi, who's a, um, is a South African astrophysicist and founding director of Astronomy Africa. He is perhaps best known for his work on the Cosmic Africa Project. And he started in a little village without electricity, lights or television. And he goes on, the whole story goes on to say how he craved uh, information and um, how he's part of his reason for wanting to do this he said was my annoyance at people telling me that black South Africans were not interested in astronomy 
And uh, at the age of 13, he actually, he, he went to, uh, he got a scholarship to a school and he made a, a crude telescope with a cardboard tube and uh, Haley's Comet had inspired him. And at wow. the age of um, 17, he actually won a science Olympiad and a trip to England. Do you know about him at all? I know about him a bit, but he sounds like the story of some of the scientists that we're going to be featuring in, in the work that we're doing um, through some of our STEM and science programs through the end of this year and into 2021. Did you know, Sue, that it's World Science Day today? Isn't that amazing? That's, it's that's amazing. If you're listening in, thank you. You're a true scientist. Mm. Wow, that's amazing. So what are you doing today for World so Science today, Day? A team of 10 of uh, Play Africa team members are in the inner city of Johannesburg at a primary school there where they are introducing children to hands-on experiential learning activities through uh, that promote science. And they're doing that in, in two parts. One is with a program that we're doing called I'm a Scientist, which is sponsored by 3M. And that's about helping bridge um, you know, inequalities in terms of science education. And we're, we're really trying to show children, every child, that they can be a scientist. As part of that engagement, they're going to be speaking with Tavani Mashaba Thompson, who's with the University of KZN's uh, Department of Nursing and Public Health. And she's got a powerful story uh, that's very similar of, of growing up and, and pursuing the sciences. And she's going to be sharing that story with the children in this in this classroom as part of the 3M I'm a Scientist program. And simultaneously, we're running our science film festival. So we're introducing children to global film, films about science. And this is sponsored with support from the Goethe Institute in Johannesburg. And so we're able to introduce them to exciting films about science that are age appropriate and then taking them to engage in a lot of hands-on experiential science experiments um, so that they can not only take the learning that they've seen in the film, but apply it through experiments. One of the things that struck me when I was in the inner city on Saturday um, through the Science Film Festival, we partnered in this creative partnership with the Johannesburg Housing Company to take the film festival during COVID to children in inner city flats and in their housing complexes. And so we've set up not only the films, but the hands-on learning experiences in these in housing complexes. Oh, and one of the things that struck me when I spoke to four 12-year-old girls who were there lined up with their masks on, socially distant, ready, sanitized to go in to start doing some experiments, I, I asked them and one of them said, I've never conducted an experiment before. This is my first time. And for me, I think um, we want to be we want the whole country to know that that's a travesty, that we should not be getting to the point where a 12-year-old girl is saying she's never conducted an experiment before. We want science education to be transformed and bringing some of that idea of experimentation, problem solving right into grade R and below so that we can induce every child the idea that they can be an inventor, a problem solver, an innovator. And that's some of the work that we're doing, <clears throat> particularly with 3M, with the Goethe Institute and our founding partner, Rand Merchant Bank. Oh, amazing. So within this pandemic, this 2020 year, you mm. have carried on functioning and um, and still reaching out to to children all over. Absolutely. You know, this year has been one that has I have to credit the entire team of Play Africa for um, taking the ship that we were in at the time of the lockdown and successfully navigating through those choppy, choppy, stormy waters and into a new 
um, path that I think has been really profound. So when 20, when COVID-19 happened and we went into lockdown, you know, we're, we're based on bringing children together in shared spaces. So how were we going to do that with COVID-19? So we, we spent a few days really brainstorming until we realized that we needed to apply some of the design thinking process that we teach children how to do and apply it to our own problem solving. So we went through our own design thinking process that's inspired by Stanford University's D school and others. And we started to say the way that we begin this journey is with empathy. So we said, let us start to call some of the parents that come to Play Africa on a regular basis, some of the educators who rely on Play Africa as a dynamic center for children in their classrooms. Let's call them and see what they need right now. And we thought they would say, oh, we need, you know, video content um, to teach, you know, CAPS curriculum. But what we really found, Sue, was a profound sense of anxiety and a sense of isolation that both parents and educators were time. So that what we needed to do was not just deal with issues around STEM education. We needed to deal with issues that are at the core of what we're about at Play Africa, which is human connection. So we developed a program called Play Africa Connects. And we did that because we called a woman who comes to Play Africa fairly regularly with her son who has autism. And she has a son who is neurotypical. And we called her and she's living in a, in a, in a house with a shared yard in Soweto. And we said, how are you doing? We just wanted to call and check and see how you are. She said, she burst into tears. She said, no one's, I haven't spoken to another adult for 10 days. I haven't left our house in 10 days. There's a dog in the yard and my son who has autism is terrified of dogs. And I thought the world had forgotten about me. And for her, the fact that we had done that reaching out was the most powerful thing that had happened to her in the entirety of the time of lockdown. And we realized then that Play Africa and our work is certainly about play and about education, but it's about much more. We'll get back to that in a moment. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on 101.9 High FM. Hello, I'm with Gretchen Wilson-Prangley, who is the CEO and co-founder of Play Africa. And what I would like to know from you, Gretchen, because they're going to be telling me to wrap up shortly, but how is Play Africa funded? Hmm. Well, we couldn't exist without the support of our partners, and I credit predominantly Rand Merchant Bank, which came on board as a founding partner to Play Africa, and really Are you got a us off the organization. Are you a Pardon non-profit? Yes, a non-profit? we're a non-profit company and a public benefit organization with Section 18A tax exemption. We're also a Level One partner for Triple BEE partnerships. Um, so we are um, registered at the highest level of, of standards for accountability and transparency. We also um, are audited annually by PwC, and they give us very strong, uh, 100% clean audits on a year-on-year basis. Um, and that's what's really allowed us to attract the funders that we have, like the Government of Canada, um, global partners like 3M. These are these are organizations that require significant due diligence for partnerships, and we're really grateful for the work that we've been able to do to set up the systems and financial controls to attract the levels of partners that we have. 
But we have so much more to do. And the fact is we can achieve what we can with the funding that we do have, but we need more partners to come on board. There are one million children in Johannesburg alone that deserve the kind of experiences that we have to offer. But the reality is we could only serve 9,000 a year based on the constraints of our physical location and the size of the team that we can support with the funding that we have now. So we know that there is a tremendous gap and not only in South Africa, in Johannesburg, but beyond. We'd like to scale what we're doing here in Play Africa in Johannesburg much more broadly with a flagship children's museum here in Johannesburg, which we've identified and we're raising $55 million for currently. We want to raise money for a digital children's museum that can serve children no matter where they are in the world, that there could be a doorway from children in Soweto to access places like Seattle and Shanghai, Berlin, Tokyo, we want children to be able to bridge gaps through technology, and that's something that we're really excited about exploring with partners. But we can't do it alone. Thank you so much, Gretchen. If people would like to get hold of you, would like to know more, they can go on to Play Africa on Google or Safari and find details there and contact you. Would that be okay? I'd love to hear from your listeners. I feel like it's been, it would be a pleasure because I think that the platform that you provide, Sue, is incredible. And I'd love to hear from anyone who's listening today. My personal email address is Gretchen at playafrica.org.za and they can come to playafrica.org.za and follow us, our story on Facebook and LinkedIn. Thank you so much, Gretchen. We're going to be st- um, ending with a song by Judy Erwick. And it's by the, Judy and Wendy Fine, The Land, The Sea, You and Me. It's a, uh, an album. You might know about it. If not, your, the children would love it at Play Africa. We're going to be ending with a song called A Picture, A World. But I would just like to, first of all, just say this one quote. Don't waste time asking, why isn't this world a better place? This is only time wasted. Instead, the question to ask is, How can I make a difference? To that, there is always an answer. That's from Leo Biscaglia. Thank Mm. you so much, Gretchen. The song will be coming on now. It's called I Picture a World. I will be in contact with you uh, on the phone shortly. Um, This this play with a song will start now. Thank you so much, Craig.